Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep us in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It's important for the believer to make sure that he is in fellowship with God before we study the Word. It is the Holy Spirit who is the one who guides us and directs us. As part of his indwelling ministry, he also fills us. That is, he enables us to understand his Word. Ephesians 5.18 gives us the command that we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 tells us that we are to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. The connection is made because the consequences that flow from both commands, if you compare Ephesians 5.19 with Colossians 5.17 and following, are the same. It is the Holy Spirit who fills us with His Word. We are filled by means of the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who fills us with His Word. And as part of that indwelling ministry, He fills us. But when we sin... It breaks fellowship with God because God uh, is light and in him dwells no darkness. He cannot have fellowship with, uh, with believers who are in carnality, who are walking in darkness. Therefore, we have to recover. That recovery process is part of what we call sanctification. The believer is purified or made holy experientially when we confess our sins to God, when we admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, then at that instant, God the Father forgives us. We are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of God the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our spiritual growth. It is uh, When we're out of fellowship, it's not that the Holy Spirit ceases all operations, but He ceases all sanctifying operations. And so there can be no spiritual growth to, during that time. So we have to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we begin our study to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine and to make sure that you are in fellowship. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together as believers this morning to study your word, that we may be encouraged and strengthened by the study of your word, and that we may also be challenged in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. The purpose for gathering together as believers is to worship you. The highest form of worship is to study your word, that we might exchange the uh, human viewpoint opinions in our soul for the absolute truth of your word, divine viewpoint. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, respond to that challenge today, not to uh, uh, falter before the truth of your word. Father, we also pray for our nation today. We continue to be in this war of terrorism. We continue to uh, be under the threat of violence and continued terrorist activity. Father, we pray that you would Give uh, our president, give our congressional leaders, military leaders, uh, civilian leaders the wisdom, the skill to make right decisions from a position of strength, not to uh, play politics at this time, but to recognize the extreme danger that we're in and to take the uh, proper course of action. We pray that uh, you would give the people in this nation the uh, will, the stamina to stay strong uh, 
throughout the course of this, this battle. And Father, we pray that you would protect us, that you would watch over this nation, and though there are those who would seek to do us tremendous damage, we pray that you would keep us safe and secure. Father, we pray that you would, as a church, challenge us with the truth of your word, and that we might continue to grow, continue to be part of that uh, uh, invisible block of spiritual heroes that that are steadfast bedrock of stability in this nation. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we enter into the closing sections of 1 Corinthians. This is the last chapter, and this chapter has only a couple of sections. First four verses focus on a particular topic, and that is a topic of giving. And then from verse 5 on, we have simply closing notations related to various issues, personal plans on the part of the Apostle Paul, and a few closing uh, challenges and the last section of the epistle. So we should be wrapping up, I believe, this study within the next couple of weeks. If we don't finish it next week, then it will be the week after that. What I plan to do after we finish 1 Corinthians is to embark on another short doctrinal topical study entitled, How We Can Trust the Bible. This is a great challenge today for many people, and I hope that I can pull some things together in that study and some particular messages that you can almost hand out like a like a cassette track rather than giving somebody you know a booklet or something to read you can hand them one message and a tape to deal with some of these things there's such a crisis today of trust in scripture and we're living in a in a postmodern age when people think that the christianity is just another option you know, some people like Coca-Cola, some people like Sprite, some people like Dr. Pepper, and uh, it's just another option. So uh, some people are Christian, some people are, are Muslim, some people are Buddhist or New Agers, and some people are atheists, whatever makes you happy. But the issue is that there's, there is external truth, there is absolute truth, and God has revealed that to us, and we can trust the Scriptures. So people want to know how... How we can trust the Scriptures, are they reliable? We live in an age when there are very subtle assaults on Christianity. For example, in the book, The Da Vinci Code, there are two basic uh, attacks. One is against the person, the deity of Christ. The other is against the New Testament and the reliability of the New Testament documents. And the claim that's made in that fictional work is that there are just numerous other writings in the uh, early church, and there were just a few people who got together and arbitrarily chose these 27 books and excluded dozens, if not hundreds, of others. And so people are reading that and thinking, well, why should I believe this Bible? There's a whole other Bible out there that's different. And so Christians need to be forearmed with the answers and and know not only what the Bible teaches, but what happened historically how did we get the Bible? How did these 27 books get collected into the New Testament? So we will uh, embark on a study there beginning uh, in two, the next two or three weeks. Okay, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. We begin with the verse, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Now, what we have here is a change in topic. For the last uh, several months, we have worked our way through a rather lengthy doctrinal discourse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15 as the subject of resurrection, resurrection, is still part of a, of a larger section that goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, we had our last use of this phrase that's translated, now concerning. In the Greek, this is the phrase, peri 
there, which the there is your conjunction and, or sometimes it is simply translated as a transitional word now, and sometimes it has the idea of but, and then the preposition peri means concerning or with reference to. Now, it's been some time since we've gone over this, so this is just a reminder that the Corinthian Christians had sent some, apparently sent some questions by way of some messengers to the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote this, he was teaching in Ephesus at the uh, end of his second missionary journey. He ends up in Ephesus, and he will take his third missionary journey uh, subsequent to writing 1 Corinthians, at which time he uh, will write his second epistle uh, to the Corinthians as he is approaching them. He will go back through Greece and go back to Corinth and visit them again. That's part of his uh, third missionary journey. And in between, he is preparing them, uh, as with other congregations, to take up a collection, to take up various uh, offerings in relationship to a problem that existed down in Jerusalem. And so he is changing a topic here because apparently they had some questions about how they should do this, some procedural questions, and maybe some questions related to what was happening in uh, Judea. But all that Paul answers is the procedural issues. And in this, we get, in just these four verses, we get insight into the biblical doctrine of the believer's responsibility in giving financially to the local church. And we can expand this through a look at uh, the subsequent instructions and comments that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where he deals in more detail with the doctrine of giving. Now, this is one of those subjects that some pastors love to talk about. And you get this, and they just love to talk about giving all the time. And every time you uh, listen to them, there's always about a 10-minute section on some tape or video where all they do is talk about some book they're selling or some uh, prayer cloth they have or some anointing oil they want to foist off on people. And it's... uh, uh, all you can do to get past that, and it's just a money, money, money. That's all they talk about. And you turn on the television and watch some of these uh, ministries on TV or turn on the radio, and that's all you get is an emphasis on money. You go to some churches, and it's the same kind of thing, that when you come to the end of the, of the uh, morning service, there's an emphasis on giving. And various churches do it in different ways, and some of them... Uh, make such uh, emphasis on it that it's it's really uncomfortable. And I find that I've been in some churches where I've been made to feel very uncomfortable because of the practices uh, related to giving. And it is because, uh, for it's related to a number of reasons, but it's fundamentally it's because people aren't taught grace, number one, and pastors aren't willing to rely upon God's grace to provide the income. In some cases, it's just that they don't have folks that are willing to respond to grace. You have to be willing to say, well, if the money's not coming in, if people are not willing to give freely without a lot of manipulation and without gimmicks and without uh, promising them all of these other things, then maybe it's not God's will for us to do this. Because one of the ways that God guides and directs uh, in ministries and local congregations is through his provision. And if God does not provide the the funds, then perhaps uh, one of the reasons is that people really aren't positive to the truth of God's word, and so it's just necessary to shut the ministry down. And I have uh, made this a policy of the way I conduct my ministry, is that we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, talking about how much money folks need to give to support the ministry, whether it's the tape ministry, or whether it's the local church ministry. God's going to supply the resources, and that's part of logistical grace. He's not only going to supply the financial resources, God is also going to supply the personnel resources. So when we have needs in Sunday school or prep school, if we have needs in uh, leadership, 
If we have needs in other areas of things that we want to accomplish, God is going to provide the right people who can take on that responsibility. Then you run into a second problem, and that is, are people willing to step forward and take that responsibility? God may supply you as an integral part of ministry in this congregation. But then it's up to you as to whether or not you're going to accept that challenge and that responsibility to get involved, to to exercise your spiritual gift and teach in prep school, to exercise your spiritual gift. Maybe it's the gift of service and to work at some other capacity in the local church, volunteer to do one thing or another, whether it's taking care of the grounds or, or whatever it may be. But all of this is part of giving. We often restrict the topic of giving to simply uh, money now, just because you uh, uh, give of yourself in, the, in a ministry in prep school or something like that does not absolve a believer of responsibility of giving financially in support of a local church and it 's always interesting to, for me to watch what happens in in local churches. It seems that and it 's really sad that there 's sort of a an inconsistency here, and that is that churches that emphasize legalism and tithing a lot, often have congregations that give extraordinary amounts of money. And those folks don't necessarily feel like they're being browbeaten or that they're being manipulated to give. I mean, if you felt that way, you wouldn't hang around very long. And in some church cultures, because of the denominational background and because of their traditions, you know, folks just think that's the that's the way it's done, and so they don't really have a problem with it. Now, there are other folks that that do have a problem with it. But I was talking with one pastor who has a church in a it's a minority church in a rather impoverished area of Houston not too long ago, and his church wasn't a whole lot larger than Preston City Bible Church, and they had just built a building. And I, this was two or three years ago, and we were. Uh, talking as we do occasionally about what are we going to do with this little meeting house and how are we going to survive and, and we need to put up a new building and, and uh, what should our plans be and things of that nature. And so I was curious because I knew the size of his congregation and I knew where it was located in Houston. Now, the other side of it is I don't know that his congregation necessarily all lives in this part of town. Okay, now they could be coming from... Uh, out in you know the suburbs and then going back into that area for for church one uh, you know I, I just don't know but i said well how much was this new building that you put up and it was about quarter million 300,000 which is not too different from what we've looked at if we were to if we were to put up a building here and i said well what size congregation do you have and he says well we have about 80 or 90 adults hmm well, that's great. What's your annual budget? About 250000 a year. So you take in 250000 a year, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to tell this guy, but that's like four times what we take in. And, you know, that's just an interesting statistic. Legalism pays. Maybe we ought to go back and think about this. And then I talk to other pastors who are in grace-oriented churches, and they're scared to death to ever, ever mention finances because somebody's going to accuse them of, of legalism or all you want is our money. And so they never mention it. I say, well, what's your annual budget? Well, we take it in about 40000 a year. Now, that's a church of maybe larger than what we are. And uh, we're always struggling. You know, why is it that grace-oriented churches and churches that emphasize grace and giving can't come up with a, hardly the money to pay the bills, and the legalists have more than enough money, and they're doing quite well? And somewhere along the line, we have, we've dropped the ball when it comes to teaching the principles of giving and the responsibilities on the local believer in the local church to the local church. And... Paul is never seems to be ashamed or reticent about doing this, and that's why I think it's part of our culture. It's part of a culture of being a white church that we don't talk that much about money, that, that unless you're a Pentecostal white church, and that has other there are other social I think sociological aspects in relationship to that, as well as theological aspects, which are the final issue. But we. Uh, 
have a tendency not to talk so much about money. And then on the other hand, I think as a conservative evangelical doctrinal church, there is a tendency in our circles to be in reaction to the people who are always talking about money. And so with our emphasis on grace, number one, and with the fact that we are all, we, we tend to have this, this um, uh, uh, attitude of, of revulsion to the way people are manipulated and these ministries just seem to, to all just want money, 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 that we go to the other extreme and we don't ever talk about it. And we don't ever mention it. And in some churches, they won't even mention the fact that a missionary has some uh, some need. And, for example, there may be a need for a computer. There may be a need for this. And in missionary prayer letters, they may mention the fact that, well, we're thinking about this and that and building a building or doing this or doing that. And we'd like for you all to pray about that. And some people are so scared to death that somebody might think that that's really a, a hidden and subtle appeal for funds that they won't even allow missionaries to mention what their needs are because they're so afraid that somebody might be asking for money. And to let people know what possible needs are is not a recognition of, uh, of, of a fa- it's not a failure to rely upon the grace of God. It's a recognition that people need to know something about what's going on and what what the needs are and what the and so uh Paul is not one to um, be shy about this when he makes the opening statement now concerning the collection for the saints he doesn't really tell us what this in what this involved but when we look at some other passages in scripture we realize that this was a collection to take back to Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church had gone through a history of problems. And if you look at a couple of correlating passages, for example, Romans 15.26 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you realize that what Paul was doing was taking up financial collection when he would arrive at one of these churches he had established. He had established the procedure where they would on a regular basis, individually, privately, based on their own circumstances, set aside a certain amount of money. And then when Paul came six months later or a year later, they then had been saving up a certain amount of money over the year, and they would give him that money, and he was going to uh, give that to, a, as we'll see here, a delegation of people. He did not handle the money. He would give that to a special, specially delegated group, and they took it back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was seen as the, as the mother church, of course, because that's where Christianity began. And they had established themselves and were the first to begin to send out the apostles, and they went, of course, following the dictates of Acts 1-8, however reluctantly, to Judea and Samaria, and as persec- then persecution arose, as we read in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen and uh, Saul before he was saved. Persecution arose and the believers were scattered, but there were still a group of believers who stayed in Jerusalem, but they were, uh, they were Jewish believers. And the Orthodox Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were beginning to enact certain civil laws that if you had become a Christian, you were restricted in uh, business, you were restricted in uh, certain things that you could do. And so it was uh, becoming more and more difficult for them to engage in business in, in Jerusalem. And then a, a famine occurred. During the decade of the 40s, there were several years of, of uh, uh, as part of the fourth cycle of discipline, according to Leviticus chapter 26, to warn the Jews in light of the coming uh, fifth cycle of discipline that would take place in uh, 70 A.D. when uh, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and and the nation would be wiped out. So... The Jerusalem church was going through difficult times, and Paul was taking up collection at various churches to send back to the Jerusalem congregation in order to help these believers through these tough 
uh, financial times. They had been persecuted. They had lost some of their, profes- uh, their, their possessions. They were prevented from uh, uh, getting jobs or uh, having businesses or, or being involved in commerce. And so Paul saw this as a mutual responsibility of other believers to take care of them as part of grace orientation. So in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, and he doesn't go into detail there, which leads us to assume that the Corinthians were well aware of who this collection was for and why it was necessary. And then Paul says, As I, as I directed, or as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. And here we have the verb diatasso, which has to do with, with giving a mandate, giving direction. So there is a responsibility, and he's done this to the churches of Galatia. So Paul would go along, and to each church he would say, now part of your responsibility is to take care of these other believers in Jerusalem. This isn't really an option. It's part of family responsibility, just as you parents will tell your uh, older children that it's their part of their responsibility to take care of their younger brothers and sisters. It's just part of what goes along with being members of the royal family of God and part of the uh, behavior standards that God has established for believers, that we are to take care of one another. It is a uh, uh, product of the mandate that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as he loved us. It's part of demonstrating impersonal love for all mankind, impersonal love for all believers. So giving, the responsibility of giving uh, in the believer's life is part of his demonstration of grace orientation and uh, impersonal love for other believers. So Paul says, Now concerning the collection for these saints, for other believers, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So also you do. And here we have a, an aorist active imperative. Second person plural. An aorist active imperative which emphasizes the priority of the action. Whenever you have... A, an aorist imperative, it emphasizes priority. When you have a present imperative, it indicates standard operating procedure. Now, does that mean that this wasn't to be a standard operating procedure? No. But in the, in this instance, in this situation, it was to, it was to be moved up the priority scale. So apparently in the Corinthian congregation, giving, uh, the giving in relationship to this particular project, was not a priority or as high a priority as Paul wanted it to be. So he is, he mandates them, so I also, so you must also do, emphasizing taking up this collection. Now in verse 2, he begins to give us some uh, basic principles for the, for giving. Verse 2, he says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, I think it is very important that to recognize that he doesn't dictate an amount or a percentage. We'll get to the tithing issue eventually, but he does not indicate a, a specific amount. The first phrase, on the first day of the week, indicates the fact that this should be something that is regular something that you make a personal decision about or a family decision about, that as frequently as, as uh, you get paid, you make a decision about your giving. Some folks get paid weekly. Other folks get paid bimonthly. Other people get paid um, monthly, whatever it may be. Uh, the standard procedure in the ancient world was that most folks got a, uh, made their money each week so they would... Uh, look at how God had prospered them during the week, and then on the basis of how God had provided for them, then they would make a decision how much they would set aside. So it was to be a regular thing. And he wasn't going to wait until the time came. 
Now, this also lays down the principle of the importance of saving. The importance of saving. Now, I don't know a whole lot, and I don't think most of you know a whole lot about the history of Preston City Bible Church. This is a church of 200 years. And the only real substantive savings that this church has was a result of the sale of the the parsonage some 15 years ago. Now, that means that for probably, you know, the large majority of that 200 years, people in this church were not challenged with the responsibility of storing up for the future. You know, they were very nearsighted. They didn't store up for future generations. And that doesn't, that is not a, a contradiction to relying upon the grace of God. You look at churches that have been around for a couple of hundred years, usually they become liberal by now, and so, but the sad thing is those churches have endowments, they have uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars that have been saved up, and in many cases it is because they have been very wise in the way they have utilized money. In some cases, of course, the motivation was legalistic, so it's not going to count spiritually at all. But they have challenged folks in the congregation that when you make out your will, uh, you know, you can leave a legacy to the local church. And I understand that there are a number of tax benefits to that if, if, uh, if you're in that category. You can do a number of things like that. I think that's very wise. I think it's good for, for individual believers to think about that in terms of seminaries, in terms of Bible colleges, in terms of mission organizations, not just individual missionaries, but in terms of mission organizations, because this is how wealth is accumulated, and there is nothing wrong with the accumulation of wealth. In fact, the Proverbs teach that it is a wise parent that leaves an inheritance for his children. So if you have the mentality that I want my life and my money to run out about the same time, that's just paganism, selfishness. See, part of your responsibility as a parent is to accumulate some wealth so that, and property so that you have an inheritance to pass on to your children. And then they should build on that and have something to leave for their children so that over the course of generations, uh, property and wealth is established and accumulated because we all know it takes money to do things. And if we had a, an income of three or four hundred thousand dollars at Preston City Bible Church, just think of what we could do with that. Just think of what could be accomplished. There's nothing wrong with that. See, somebody says, well, you know, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's, the, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's getting it out of whack, getting a misplaced priority. But everything, every time I go anywhere and go with any missionary organization or any group, ministries take money. And it's even more so today because of the cost of technology and a number of other factors, cost of travel, Many things like that. It, it just takes money. It's, it's a fact of life. It's not something to apologize for. It's not something to feel awkward about. It is so, simply a reality. Ministries need finances. And ministries don't, aren't engaged in pro- profit making. In other words, it's not the task of a ministry to try to produce some sort of, of a good or service that they sell and make money from. Now, you can go down to any number of these churches up and down 164 out here, and they'll have fairs, and they'll have bazaars, and they'll have yard sales, and they'll have all these other things to make money. And that's because nobody there understands grace. Nobody there understands the Lord and they, they uh, or the Lord's provision or biblical principles of giving. So they're trying to raise money through all kinds of gimmicks rather than trusting the Lord. And the church is built on the understanding of the individual believers in the body recognizing their responsibilities to financially support the local church ministry and missions. And we talk about the fact that that as a client nation, uh, part of the responsibility, well, of any nation, but part of the responsibility in what uh, is, is a basis for uh, God's use of a, of a client nation in history is missions, that they send out missionaries. 
Well, it's not the, technically it's not the nation's responsibility to send out missionaries. It's not the function of government. It's not the function of the president or Congress. It's not the, pres, the function of any of the state government. But as a, as a nation, we should be, any nation should be sending out missionaries. But they come from local churches. And those missionaries are, and the, the, the number of missionaries and the quality of their support and the quality of their ministry is going to be de, uh, determined in a large part by the kind of financial support that they're given. And that comes from who? That comes from believers sitting in the pews in local churches as a result of their spiritual growth. Now, we always have to be reminded that giving doesn't somehow give us a little special standing in God's eyes. He's not going to bless us a little more because we gave a little more. Uh, that's legalism. But it is a, grace giving is a response to all that God has provided for us and a recognition that everything that God provides for, everything that we have has been provided for us by God. Now you may have worked hard. You may have gone through uh, college or university and you may have a great education and you may look back and say, well, I don't know that God really gave me anything. Look at all the hard work I put into it. Yeah, but there's a lot of folks out there who have a great education have a Ph.D. and they're flipping burgers at Burger King. Are they unemployed? They're living under a bridge. Or they just can't find a job in their career and they've worked hard. Some people have worked hard and, and uh, they don't have a whole lot. And other people have hardly worked at all and they seem to have a tremendous amount. So just because you've worked hard doesn't mean that you're the source of your prosperity and that you're the source of the... Uh, of the financial blessing in your life. God's provided that. He provides every morsel of food that we have. He provides uh, every steak that you have in that refrigerator or freezer. He provides all your your uh, uh, needs, your, all your logistical needs to keep body and soul together. And as a result of that, we are to express our gratitude to God, not only for our salvation and our spiritual sustenance, but for everything that He has given us. And the principle of giving is that we are giving back to, to the Lord's work that which God has supplied for us. See, the attitude that we should have is that God has given us X number of dollars to see how we're going to use that for the furtherance of the gospel ministry, how we're going to properly utilize what God has given us in terms of various responsibilities, not so we can just figure out how much we can go spend on our pleasures, but how much we're going to utilize that money, how well we're going to utilize that money, and how responsibly we're going to use it in terms of various responsibilities. Taking care of parents is one thing. If you have elderly parents, then that begins to be a responsibility that may uh, weigh upon your shoulders at some point. Now, taking care of your children until they become uh, self-sufficient. Of course, sometimes you have to make a decision as to whether or not uh, cutting them off completely is the way to uh, teach them to truly become self-sufficient rather than uh, just riding along on and depending on uh, you to take care of everything all the time. So the Bible has a lot to say about money and the, and the individual believer's responsibility in money. Read through Proverbs. There's a tremendous amount there about how to spend your money, how to use your money, how to save your money. And so the principle that we see in this first verse, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, emphasize the principle of saving for the future. Paul may not come for six months, eight months, or a year. But he says, start laying aside a certain amount now. Now, he doesn't give them the amount. He doesn't tell them a specific amount. He says, storing up as he may prosper. And really, the verse should be translated, as God has prospered you. God is, it's a, as, as you may prosper is the present passive subjunctive of the Greek verb uodao. Looks like this, E-U-O-D-E-O. Now, in modern Greek, that's probably pronounced evodao, or something like that. Because they take this upsilon here, and they translate that as if it's an F, 
And this word, adao, is the word for a road or a path, even a highway. So you see that road. When we were in Greece, we saw that word everywhere. And it means to have a path that goes well. This EU prefix has to do with that which is well or good or, or, or pleasing. So it, it, it has the root meaning of having a good or successful road or path in life. It is a passive voice verb which indicates that God is the one who is performing the action. The believer is receiving the action of prosperity. You do not cause your prosperity. It is the result of, of how God has prospered you. Now, the principle here is not tithing. It's grace giving. See, somehow, people have gotten into this idea that the principle is tithing, which is an old English word meaning 10%. And so they say that this is the principle for the for giving in, in the New Testament church. Well, if you believe in tithing and you believe in a distinction between Israel and the church, then you are incredibly inconsistent. You cannot be a dispensationalist and believe in tithing. Tithing was for Israel only. There is no tithing in the New Testament. Testament. It is never mentioned as such. What you have in the New Testament is the principle of grace giving as God has prospered you, as it's laid down here in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. The principle of tithing goes back to the Old Testament. The first mention of tithing is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. So turn with me. Let's just take a look at this. Turn with me in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. This takes place subsequent to Abram, or Avram as it would be pronounced in the Hebrew, Avram's victory over the uh, four kings that came in and invaded the land. The four kings under uh, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Keterleomer, the king of Edom, entitled the king of the, of the uh, nations in verse 1. A- Avram has had victory over them. He's rescued their captives, including his nephew Lot. And on his return home, he stops off in the city of Salem, which is ruled by this unique figure in the Old Testament, named Melchizedek. Now, I believe Melchizedek wasn't a proper name, but was his title. It means king of righteousness. uh, Malach is the Hebrew word for king, and Sedek is the word for righteousness uh, from the the noun Sadak. So Melchizedek means the uh, righteous king, and he is the king of Salem. Now, Salem is, is, the root of Salem is Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace, and this town, Salem, became known by its compound name, Jerusalem. So Salem is the early name for the city of Jerusalem, and it is ruled by a priest king, a Gentile priest king, Melchizedek. And when Abram returns from his victory, he goes to Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, verse 18, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. Now, notice that, I I just want to make a side point here. Melchizedek is bringing out bread and wine. Now, where do we see bread and wine in the Bible? Well, you see it in the Passover meal, and then you see it in the Lord's table. But would it be right to say that there's a connection here? No. There may be certain similarities, but that doesn't mean they are, there's a straight line connection between these two. For example, you have a mortgage, and I have a mortgage. Your mortgage may be 20 years old. You might have, unless you were smart enough to refinance, you might have an 8 or 9% mortgage rate on it. Uh, my mortgage isn't that old. I have a much lower mortgage rate. So, 
Is there an application between your mortgage and mine? No, but they are both instances of an even of an even greater print, something else. But just because there are similar similarities between your mortgage and mine doesn't mean there's any sort of direct line connection between your mortgage and my mortgage. Okay, and the same thing here. Just because uh, there's bread and wine here. And there's bread and wine in communion, and there's bread and wine in the Passover meal doesn't mean there is some sort of mandate that there should always be some sort of bread and wine. This is simply reflects uh, the principle of fellowship, sitting down and eating a meal. So you have a very broad general principle that is applied, but it is not a direct um, mandate that you should always have bread and wine. You can't get that from this passage. So Melchizedek brings out bread and wine because that's the custom. That's the point I want to make. That is the custom. And he blessed him, that is Abraham, Abram, and said, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, God El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, and he that is Abram, gave him Melchizedek, a tithe of all. See, after he defeated the armies of the four kings, they had been uh, raiding all through the Middle East area, and they had all kinds of uh, bounty, and they had uh, stolen much, and they had all kinds of of, uh, treasure. And so when Abram defeated them, he took that. And of that, of those possessions, he gave 10% to Melchizedek. Did Melchizedek ask for 10%? No. Did God tell anywhere prior to this in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that you should give 10% of what you have? It's, it's not there. This is the first use of the word tithe. Apparently, this reflected a pretty standard custom in the ancient world that um, we go back to the law code of Hammurabi, which is after... Uh, Abram, Abram lived about 2166 to about uh, 2000 or 1975 B.C., something like that. And Hammurabi's law code goes back to about 1800 B.C., not quite as far back as, as uh, uh, Abram, Avram. So what we see here is that there is some sort of custom, some sort of customary issue here where people gave 10%. We find it in all kinds of tax codes throughout the ancient world that this was the standard taxable amount. It was 10% for this or 10% for that. Sometimes there might be as many as as uh, three or four 10% taxes. Now, of course, if you have three or four 10% taxes, that ends up being 30 or 40% of your income. You have 10% for this and 10% for that and 10% for something else. So that's simply what 10% means. There is no mandate here. It is simply the custom. Just as there's no mandate to have bread and wine, it was simply the custom. Okay, I just want to, I want to stress that because this is something that is often overlooked. Now, this instance is mentioned in Hebrews. So let's turn in Hebrews. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter, um, let me see, this should be Hebrews chapter, let me see if it's uh, chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews is referring back to this instance in Genesis. And he talks about Melchizedek, and in verse 1 he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. To whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. So who's he, what's the point of this? He's talking about Melchizedek. He's talking about who Melchizedek is and his role, and he simply rehearses that part of who, to remind the readers who Melchizedek was, he's the individual to whom Abram gave a tenth of the, of his spoils. I've heard some people say that that means the tenth of the best part. I've never been able to substantiate that from the original language. So that's just another thing that gets slipped in here without justification. 
Uh, he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. This is referring to Melchizedek in verse 3 and 4. And then in verse 4 we read, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now there's no mandate there saying, This guy must have been seen as a superior to Abraham. Here Abraham is our uh, progenitor, but Melchizedek must have been even greater because Abraham gave him 10% of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, that would be Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. See, the point here is is not on the tithing. He's not saying, look, Abraham tithed. That's something you should do. He's saying, look, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, so Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Israel. The fact that, that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek is not the issue. Well, you know, I've used that with some of my Baptist friends, and they just can't understand it. Because, see, for years, people have gone and say, see, tithing's in the New Testament. Look at Hebrews 7. We're supposed to tithe. That's not the point of it. Read the text. It's not talking about that. So we don't have a single passage in the New Testament that utilizes tithing as a basis for giving. So you have other examples of tithing in the Old Testament as well. In the Mosaic Law, the tithe is prescribed for mandatory giving. In fact, there are several tithes that are emphasized in the in the uh, Mosaic Law. In Leviticus 27, verse 30, the people were to give a tithe of the land and of the seed of the land, that is, their produce in an agricultural situation. Uh, it is holy to the Lord, and it was to be given to the sons of Levi for an inheritance. They didn't have property. The Levites weren't given a, pro- a property possession in the land, so they had a 10% from the people. Now, in the Old Testament, in, in, under the Mosaic Law, you have a form of government known as a theocracy. Theocracy means God rules. Just as uh, uh, democracy means the people rule or mob rules. Demos also means mob. And so in some cases it's simply mob rule. But theos meaning God and crassus for, for rule. God rules. So God is the head of the government under theocracy. But there had to be a human administration of that government. And that human administration involved two groups of people, priests who took care of the whole sacrificial system and taught the Word and led people towards God, and then God's communication to prophets. God communicated through prophets to the people. But it is through the priests and the Levites that the kingdom was administered. Now, we live in a, in a republic, actually. Now, who heads up our government? It is the president. He, that's the executive branch. Uh, we have checks, various checks and balances, so he doesn't have a have total power. But we also have a legislative branch. We have a judicial branch, and between those three branches of government, that is the head of our government. But how do they function? How do they operate? How do they take up taxes? How do they how do they execute the various laws? Well, they have a bureaucracy. There are all sorts of civil servants. In fact, our government is just absolutely bloated with civil servants. And we have this enormous bureaucracy that has to be supported. Now, how do they, we support that bureaucracy? You support that through all of your mandatory taxes. So we have various mandatory taxes that are part of income tax, property tax, business taxes, fees for this, fees for that, and we get hit with all kinds of things that support this bureaucracy. Well, in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, there is a 10%, there is a tithe, and its function was to support the Levites. That's not 
analogous to the church supporting a pastor. It is analogous to uh, citizens supporting their government through mandatory taxes. And when they did not bring in their uh, their tithes to the storehouse in in, um, in Malachi, that was the treasury, the, the temple treasury. That's where in the ancient world that was the banking system was in the temples to the various gods because that was where there there was the greatest security was in the temples. So that you have the temple treasury there. And when God condemns the Jews for not bringing their tithes into the storehouse, you can't use that to apply to the church unless you're into covenant theology. It has to do with an income tax. Now, there was another 10% tax as well, and that had to do with uh, uh, a national feast and holiday in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 10. Uh, the national feasts and holidays were supported by uh, a 10% tax. And then every third year, so right now we've got about 20%, and then every third year, so that makes it about a, the, the, the Jews had about 23% uh, income tax, as it were. Every third year, another 10% was given to support the Levite, the alien, uh, the orphan, and the widow. This was the welfare system. So every third year, they took up another 10%. And that handled all of the uh, uh, all the welfare cases. Now that was mandatory giving, but see the Mosaic law had another category of giving called free will giving, and this is what's analogous to the, the church. See, if you take this, you look at the Old Testament. You had two types of giving. You had mandatory giving, which involved twenty three percent of the income. So. If you talk about tithing, you better make it clear that you're, you're really talking about giving 23% or almost a quarter of your income to the local church if you're going to use the Old Testament. And then you had on top of that free will or grace giving. You had free will offerings and grace giving. And the mandatory giving was to support the state, to support the government, to support the bureaucracy. The free will giving was your, was your grace-oriented response to God, your gracious attitude of gratitude for all that God gave you. And so when you come into the New Testament, the first category is wiped out because we don't have a state church to support anymore. We don't have that state function. We're not a theocracy. What we do have is a government that is supported through our income tax. So this first category here is analogous to what we pay to our government in terms of income tax, property tax fees, things of that nature. We render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And the second category is free will giving, which is the basis for the giving in the church age. It is free will giving. It is, there's not a mandatory amount. It is up to the individual and is determined by their a gracious response to God and what God has provided uh, for them. So Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 2, on the first day of this week, that is, make a decision on a regular basis how much you're going to set aside for this particular project. Now, this is just one particular project, and he's also there would be the giving to support the local church and the pastor, all the things related to that. Storing up as he may prosper, that is, as God prosper, that's the category, not how, not a, a set amount or a set percentage, that there be no collections when I come. In other words, what Paul is sitting here saying is not the principle that there shouldn't be a collection when I come, but he is saying don't wait until I get there to take up a collection because you're going to sit around and say, well, I don't have a whole lot of money right now. It's not a good time. You know, I, I, you know, something happened. We got a health problem. I had to go to the emergency room the other day. The car broke down. Uh, all of a sudden, gas prices went up, and and I, it's just not a good. Come back next week. I'll have a little more to give. So that the point here is not that you shouldn't take up a collection for a special situation, but that you should plan ahead and regularly give to. Uh, the church, for example, we have money that we never talk about it, but we have a building fund. And that needs to be regularly contributed to. 
because we want to think in terms of the future. We don't want to think in terms of next week. We want to think in terms of where we're going as a church in uh, two years, five years, ten years. There's, there's going to be a need to put up another building. And so we need to be in the process of giving to that. Other congregations may be small, and maybe they don't have a pastor yet. And this, or maybe a congreg- it's a congregation that has lost a pastor. You know, think back what happened at Preston City Bible Church after, after Ron left. There was a period there when they were looking for a pastor and the giving dried up. That's horrible. What a testimony to a lack of grace orientation. So you forgot about the future. You didn't think God would provide, but you still needed to provide for the future. You're going to call a pastor. You're going to have to pay for him to move. You're going to have to pay for all other things. What a great opportunity in the life of a congregation to lay up for the future when they don't have to pay a pastor's salary. But what happens is most believers are so short-sighted and so narrow-minded that they quit giving because we don't have a pastor. And that just shows the emphasis is on the person and not on the grace of God. And so they quit giving. And all of a sudden, instead of having a great opportunity to keep the giving at the same amount and save for the future so that they're, they're, uh, they can have more resources once that pastor comes, once God supplies a pastor, they quit giving. You see it in, in, in churches that they don't, they don't have a pastor yet in a small church. And rather than having a vision, thinking about the future when God provides a pastor and giving in light of that to prepare for it, uh, they just give a little bit because we really don't have a need right now. In other words, there's no sense of God's plan and purposes in time or God's plan and purposes uh, down through the, through the ages. So we need to have that vision for the future. And Paul says in verse 3, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul is laying down a very important principle here, and that is that the pastor shouldn't handle the money. I'm amazed. I go to some churches, and I speak, and when I'm given an honorarium, and I never state an amount, when I go someplace, all I ever ask is that my travel expenses be covered. Basically, uh, you know, airfare, hotel expense, Room and board. I never mention anything or any amount, and it varies, and it's it it's been been small, and it's been quite generous. But I never mention anything. But I'm amazed sometimes when I get a check that the signature on the check is the pastor. Now that should never happen, uh, but it it does. Some cases, a pastor. I'll, I've asked a pastor and I said, "Well, I don't have anybody in the church I can trust." Well, then hire an accountant outside the church or bond somebody in the church. But you need to have somebody other than the pastor. It's too much of a temptation. And there are, there are pastors who have yielded to that and they end up in jail because they end up embezzling the funds. Somebody gets wind of it and they're in trouble. And I've heard of two or three cases in the past few years where there have been uh, situations where pastors have gotten in trouble over this money issue. As a pastor, I made a, made a decision before I ever, ever, ever went to a church that I would uh, never uh, be interested in who gave what or when. I don't have a clue. I don't want to know. I don't care to know. Um, it's none of my business. That's between you and the Lord. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I won't sign checks. I, I just want to make sure that we've got a positive balance in the account and that um, that we're going forward. That's the only thing that I'm concerned about because that gives you some idea of where people are spiritually. Giving is a great barometer of our spiritual life. Once again, that's between you and the Lord. So Paul lays down this principle here that he is not the one that's going to be involved with the with the giving. He's not going to be the treasurer. He will uh, he will send the gift with someone else. You as a congregation appoint the treasurer, the gift bearer, and I will send it with him, but I'm not going to carry it. I won't have anything to do with it. I want to make sure that no one can come along and charge me uh, even wrongly with having uh, misappropriated funds or misused the funds. That is uh, that's something I'm going to stay away from. 
Then in verse 4, he says, But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So he may travel with them, but he's not going to be uh, involved with them. Now, next time when we come back, I want to go over to uh, Second, uh, Second Corinthians, and we'll look at chapters 8 and 9 to derive basically basic principles for giving in the church age responsibility of the believer. So we won't finish 1 Corinthians next week. We'll have to wait two or three more weeks before we get back to the rest of chapter 16. But I want to take the time to go through and teach on giving and that responsibility in chapters uh, 8 and 9. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged in this area of our responsibility as part of our priesthood that we are to uh, support the local church, we are to support uh, missions, that we are to uh, give on the basis of your grace, that is, in terms of generosity, and that that is not just an option in the Christian life, but it is mandatory. It is part of our responsibility as believer priests. Father, we also recognize that, that at this time that it is, uh, there are those who may be here who are without Christ, and the issue for them is not giving. The issue is receiving. If you are here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation or uncertain of your eternal destiny, then God has something to give you, and that is eternal life. It is a free gift. There are no strings attached. It is not based on who you are, what you've done, or what you haven't done. It is based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There he paid the penalty for your sins so that all you have to do is accept that payment and you will be given eternal life. And that can never be taken away from you. This is the basis for understanding what true gifts are and what true giving is all about. Salvation is based on, based on faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.